that looks like a lot like a poltergeist because these events usually have some sort of symbolic meaning in that family. Mm. And then if we put it at the social level, we seem to have some sort of symbolic meaning associated with the UFO wave as well. You want to have proof that is an anomaly. So you want to be sure that uh, there's no trickery and everything's controlled. By the very fact you do that, you create the conditions where the phenomenon will not happen. Something eventually will replace UFOs. What it is, I, I don't know. Hmm. And it's very hard to predict. But uh, there's, there's uh, definitely a, a lot of potential for this phenomenon to die or slowly disappear because it doesn't mean anything to people, uh, or at least much less than in the past. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 9. On tonight's edition of the program, I think we're going to have a really enlightening conversation for you all. I am very excited about our guest tonight. I read his book yesterday, and it just completely blew my mind. And uh, we've had quite an adventure getting this interview put together, but it looks like it's going to be all right tonight, I hope. And uh, I'm very, very excited about it because, as I said, his new book really uh, – it just gave me all this new food for thought with regards to UFOs and the UFO phenomenon, and it's so rare that something like that comes along. In, in, in UFO literature today. So I was absolutely thrilled. Loved the book. The book is, of course, Illuminations, the UFO Experience as a Parapsychological Event. And the author is Eric Wallet, PhD, and he's here on the program tonight to talk about this book. And, uh, to sum it up in a way, uh, the, the, the sort of keystone sentence on the back is, what if UFO experiences are the result of large-scale unconscious psychic forces? Just that question, we're going to be exploring it tonight, and it, and, it, and it opens the mind up in an amazing way. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Welcome to the show, Eric Wallet. Thank you so much for coming on the program. I really, really do appreciate it. Hi, Tim. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and it's a pleasure and an honor to be on your show. And um, I'm sure we'll have uh, lots of fun discussing all kinds of topics tonight. Absolutely. I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be a blast. We'll let folks in on the whole adventure at the end of the show because uh, – I think I'll, you, I'm sure you somewhat want to want to know what happened, but uh, to kick things off here on our conversation, I think you can imagine what the first question is: the bio, the background. Tell people a little bit about Eric Wallet, PhD. How did you get interested in all this? And uh, you know, who are you? And how did Illuminations come about? Well, I'm a professor in the Canadian military establishment with the Royal Military College of Canada. I am in Toronto teaching to uh, senior military officers, uh, what you, know, you guys in the United States call the War College. And uh, I'm a sociologist. I have a PhD from uh, York University here in Toronto. And um, so I'm a professor teaching, doing research, and had a, a long interest in uh, UFOs. And I decided to uh, to put my ideas together. I started it uh, well, almost 10 years ago now. Uh, with a little blog and putting my ideas together, um, and eventually reading more and more, I get involved with uh, parapsychology, I mean the discipline of parapsychology. And I started to see a number of things that, for me, were connecting together in terms of sociology, 
in terms of UFOs and uh, parapsychology together. And uh, so eventually I decided, okay, it's time to put this into a book. And so the book just came out uh, a few weeks ago, and this is the result of all uh, all that work. Well, it's amazing. I said this, uh, I've said this several times already, but it is absolutely mind, mind blowing, this book. It really made me think about things in a whole different way. Uh, I joked with you the other night when we talked, it's like, uh, for real now, this is a, this is, I'm not a joking, this is like the best UFO book I've read since some of the Jacques Vallée stuff. Uh, so, and I'm wondering how you French guys seem to figure out these UFOs better than anybody else. So we need to know what, what the secret is there. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's just a bit too much wine when you think about <laughs> UFOs. But for real, this book is is some amazing stuff and makes you look at UFOs from a whole other angle. Now, you, you make a great point in the book that, uh, that, you know, words and meanings we use to describe strange things limits our understanding of the, the whole complex reality of, of UFOs and all this stuff. And And that's kind of a setup in a way, I guess, to sort of bring people up to speed on parapsychology first, because the, the listeners, I'm sure, to my program are well aware of the UFO phenomenon and all its lore and legend. Uh, I had thought, before I picked up your book, that, that I, I kind of knew a little bit about parapsychology, but the more I read it in your book, I realized I was, you know, that it's a lot deeper and more nuanced than I had imagined. So, I guess, bring the folks who are listening up to speed on, on the state of parapsychology, what it is, what it's all about, you know, just sort of give them a thumbnail education so we can lay the groundwork for this conversation. Well, when I use the word uh, parapsychology, I, I really refer to, uh, I would say, the, the scientific discipline of parapsychology, because sometimes this word is used very loosely right. to refer to all kinds of things. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. It's, 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 a, it's a rigorous discipline. And um, it's only that form of parapsychology I'm referring to. Um, then uh, parapsychology, a little bit of history is probably useful. Uh, although the word is uh, more than 100 years old now, uh, it really came about in the 1930s um, under the leadership of uh, Joseph Banks and Ryan, who decided to to organize um, uh, scientifically a group of researchers to study paranormal phenomena, but from a scientific perspective. And one of the decisions that they, they took at that time was to uh, cut the link with what was then called psychical research. So people were interested in talking to uh, the soul of the departed, for instance. Okay, so, so, yeah, okay, so sort of like uh, they took out the idea of a sentient other. Yes, essentially for them, any the per, uh, paranormal um, phenomena are all human produced, and humans are alive with us. Okay, right that's now. like a keystone uh, of the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple of reasons for that, but one of them is is of course that um, uh, people who did psychical research, a lot of them came up with very naive things. A lot of them were conned by people who claim to be mediums and all these things. So they wanted to, to have a clean break with this. That's one, one aspect. The second aspect, of course, is that if, you, if your object of study is a non-human entity, you know, a ghost, a spirit, whatever, you can't study it scientifically because we don't know what they are. They show up whenever they want how often they want. And so there's no ways to study patterns. Hmm. If you say that these events are produced by us humans, 
Well, we can establish patterns because we can observe humans. We, we know a fair bit about human beings, and therefore we have a base to start with. So for those two reasons, they decided to have a clean break. So scientific parapsychology, at least in the official version of it, when you talk to them individually, it's a bit different, but at least at the discipline, there's a break with uh, non-human entities. They're not involved. They're not constituted as part of their research and study. Hmm. Okay. Like I said, that's a that's a key part of the whole thing uh, as we get into this this uh, discussion. Now, what I thought was interesting too is you point out that uh, you're you're a member of this parapsychology association, but they're they're pretty adamant that they're not involved in UFOs. They don't even want to look at it, which is interesting in a sense because what you're you're going in line with the parapsychological thinking. You're not you're not ascribing this to a sentient other. You're ascribing it to the human being. So you are taking a parapsychological approach. But it's interesting that you know you say that it's that there's like this this wall between the two sort of uh, genres, if you will. Hey, absolutely. Uh, I'm trying to bridge. Um fields of study together through my work. Um, and again, um, the parapsychologists uh, tended to stay away from the UFO research for a very similar reason they stayed away from psychical research because unfortunately, as most people know, uh, in the UFO world, there's a lot of people who said a lot of um, crazy things. Really? Uh, yep. And... <laughs> And really, they didn't want to be associated with uh, with that. And um, so, so for one and two, if if you make the equation UFO and extraterrestrial hypothesis, so the ETH, as being the same thing, well, obviously you're not touching this because again, the phenomenon then is is attributed to a non-human entity or right. a group of entities. Um, but if, and that's what I'm trying to do. I can demonstrate that at least it can be studied without the intervention of uh, non-human entities, then there's no reasons for parapsychology to ignore UFOs. Right. That's the point I'm making. It's a powerful point, man. It's, uh, like I said, it's the the, the great part. I loved your whole introduction. It was like this, this, I don't know if you know the expression, but it was like this mic drop. It was like this, uh, this, this sort of like slap in the face of, of the state of understanding of this phenomenon of UFOs, where you're saying, you know, at the beginning, it's like we, we've embraced, I don't mean we, I mean like people researching this. They, they have embraced the extraterrestrial hypothesis and they're opposed by the adamant, uh, people that skeptics who say that it's nothing at all. And they've been in this gridlock for, you know, almost a century. For sure, you know, just since they popped up on the scene, certainly in the in the state of discussing this bizarre uh, phenomenon, it's been this back and forth, black and white thing. And and you kind of come in here and you're like, enough's enough. Let's take a fresh look at this from a whole different angle. And that's what we need in in the entire field, in a sense. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I mean, the the idea that there's a paranormal dimensions to the UFO is not new. I mean, it goes back to the 1960s, um, but it never really um, made, um, I would say, headlines within the UFO world. Inroads, either. Uh, yeah, and more inroads, yes. And that's very unfortunate because really, if if you pay attention to, uh, to the details. And you look at the details of cases, that seems to be the only thing that really sticks. And at least 
if it's humans producing it, we can study it more closely than just uh, hoping that when the aliens will show their face for real. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And I really, I really, I, I wanted to like just stand up and cheer. I got to give you kudos here. There's a point in the book where you mentioned that you work for the government and that, you know, people in the conspiracy UFO realm will think that this is part of some cover up and you're just like, this book's not for you. You don't, it's like, it's like, it's just awesome. Just the way you said, <laughs> this book's not for you. It's like, thank you. Thank you. This book isn't for those folks. This is book is for the folks who genuinely want to try and figure this out. I mean, that's all we're trying to do here is figure this thing out, uh, you know. And it's exciting that you, you found sort of a new way of looking at this, you know, which is really, really exciting because uh, I've looked at this for so long. And for someone to come along and sort of put, I mean, like you said, this isn't like a new idea, but it's like you really synthesize it into something that I can put in my hands and read and be like, wow, this guy took like a, a little crappy idea I have in my head and turned it into something awesome. So it's it's uh it's quite the book, folks. Get it. To sort of complete the descriptor here of the parapsychological research, I guess explain to folks you sort of talked about that we're saying these things come from people, but what are the things? You know, what are the what are these sort of abilities that are ascribed to the to the humans within these parapsychological uh, concept, if you will? Well, the the key concept of uh, parapsychology is, is called psi, so P S I. It's coming from the Greek letter, um, and essentially this um, it's it's explaining uh, how things can happen without uh, the intervention of normal means. So I'll explain myself a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's two kinds of or two major categories. One is the the uh, accessing information through non-normal means. So uh, and it's usually referred to as uh, extrasensory perception. So ESP. And it covers a whole slew of phenomena, such as <clears throat> uh, telepathy, clairvoyance, premonition, and the like. Okay. The second category of psi is uh, is uh, acting on matter, or physical things, um, again, without uh, using normal means. And that's described as psychokinesis, and so PK for, for short. Mm-hmm. And that includes a number of phenomena such as uh, throwing the dice and you get the results you want, but it could be uh, uh, healings that are unexplainable, as well as moving objects uh, in poltergeist events or um, uh, <clears throat> changing, uh, for instance, uh, creating synchronicity where something falls at the time where you're thinking about something. Yeah. Uh, so these are covers that second category of phenomenon. Now, we could push this a little bit further, um, that uh, some people in parapsychology uh, work very closely with physicists. And one of the things that, um, you know, we learn in school is that, you know, uh, matter is, uh, is actually uh, a combination of, um, of uh, energy and, and uh, physical matter. But actually, there's another component, is information. Uh, matter is not just matter, it's organized matter. And the fact that um, it has an internal uh, position, has a direction, has a speed, um, this, all these elements are actually information that makes matter more than just a pile of dust. Right. 
And um, so some parapsychologists are saying, well, maybe in the end, psychokinesis is just modifying the information that is in matter. And so ESP is accessing information and PK is just modifying information. So in the end, it seems to be all linked to information. our information, our capacity to influence it uh, through non-normal means. Mm. Okay. I think we've caught everyone up to <laughs> to speed on this. It's amazing. I could talk to you for a while just about this in a sense where it's like, I guess before before we do, I do want to know a little bit more. Is in the sense that, like, who's do, who are doing these? What's going on in, in this realm? Who are doing these studies? What kind of studies are being done on this stuff? Because to me, it's like this sounds so fantastical. This sounds like like stuff that I saw in the checkout line when I was a kid. So I, I mean, apparently there are people who are studying this and trying to get to the bottom of it. Uh, who are these people? What are these studies like? Uh, what's the state of that research? The research done in parapsychology is, uh, I would say, mostly done by people who are members of the Parapsychological Association, which is the only scholarly association that's okay. in that field. Uh, there's about 200 members, uh, approximately. Um, and I would say it's that there are basically two kinds of research done. Uh, one kind is more in, in, the, in the lab setting where they're trying to um, uh, produce a psi effect uh, through <clears throat> the classic example is through uh, try to guessing the cards. Now, things have changed quite a bit. They have uh, way more rigorous methodologies and try to insulate people from uh, their own senses and, and trying different approaches. Um, but the effect that they've seen is more statistical. So if you have a 10% chance of getting right and doing thousands of uh, tests, uh, you get uh, something like 13%. Then that's a deviation that is actually um, uh, significant mm. in, in from a statistical point of view. So that is a lot of research that in parapsychology that's focusing on these aspects. Um, and on the, the psychokinesis side uh, is to try to influence um, uh, random number generators. Machines that just produce numbers uh, through uh, uh, using electronics. And then we try to get people with their mind to influence the electrons. So the numbers uh, or series of numbers that should be uh, appearing it should be spread evenly statistically. But uh, so if we see some numbers that are actually uh, spiking more often than, than, than not, then again, it's seen as a, uh, as a significant uh, deviation from the statistical average. Mm. So that, that's, uh, that's a very, I would say, um, dry approach to parapsychology, but it's useful because it helps us to at least understand some of the basics of what it's all about. Then there's a second category of researchers that are more like me, so people who are doing more case studies, more qualitative approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they they look into, um, the classic example is to look into a poltergeist event, and they will go and, and uh, interview the people if they can observe the phenomenon, it's, it's even better. Uh, one of the famous uh, parapsychologists who's now deceased, but his name is uh, William Rowe, who uh, did extensive studies on on uh, poltergeists and interviewed people. He did um, all kinds of uh, tests on 
finding out what kind of personalities that are more prone to these things. Hmm. Um, so these are more the, the qualitative. So that's the second category okay. uh, of uh, parapsychologists. I got to dig more into this. Uh, I'm gonna have to talk to you off the air or, or instruct me on where I should. I guess the Paralo- Para- Parapsychological Association. I got to find some more folks to talk about this with because this is uh, intriguing stuff. Now I think now that we've brought people up to speed on parapsychology, the gist of the book is the UFO experience as a parapsychological event. You're suggesting that UFOs are a creation of Psi, uh, a psi creation by people, essentially. That's a really bare bones version, but that's that's the parapsychological hypothesis. Now, I just want to, I guess, get a slight clarification in a sense because uh, I think I think I'm right, but I'm not sure. Um, this this has nothing to do with like hallucinations, right? This is not like mass hallucination ideas or 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 individual hallucinations, is it? Um, yes and no. Uh, what I'm saying in my book is that, uh, you know, the, the well-documented cases where we really don't have an answer, uh, there's some sort of genuine anomaly behind it. But one thing that parapsychologists found is that genuine anomalies are also mixed up with other things at the same time. The classic example is poltergeist. Usually when a poltergeist event, which is... Uh, for uh, your, your listeners, if they're not aware of this, this, this houses where there's walls banging and objects moving on their own and people hearing sounds coming from nowhere. Um, and sometimes uh, the, the, and, uh, lots of the furniture is broken by these uh, events. Yeah, we did a show on it a couple months ago. It's like okay. things go flying around the room and yeah, 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 yeah. But these, uh, these poltergeist events uh, tend to have a, a pattern. There's a lot of activities. Well, it starts slowly, then there's a lot of activities, and then goes down. Uh-huh. Well, as it goes down, we we uh, the researchers found that usually the person that seems to be at the center of all this starts to fake it as well so to 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 keep the attention uh, on him or her. Hmm. Uh, there's some sort of psychological need that's behind it. And so, therefore, you rarely have a poltergeist case that is actually purely anomalistic or purely fraud. It's a mix of both. And so, my 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 approach with UFO is that the same: is that there is a genuine anomaly, but there might be also at the same time some shared hallucination that colors or gives a specific flavor to the anomaly. So. It's not a pure case of it. it's either hallucination or it's an anomaly. It's both. Oftentimes, it's both at the same time. Okay. All right. It's very, like I said before, it's very mind-bending stuff. So I'm trying to, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it, Eric. <laughs> well, I can give you <clears throat> some examples. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might be helpful. A simple thing is that uh, some UFO events, what produced the thing in the sky is actually a plane or something to, uh, really mounting. But the fact that two, three, four, five people felt the need to look in that direction and they saw something different than a plane, that's the anomaly. It's not the thing in the sky that is the anomaly. It's the fact that people had a shared, quote-unquote, hallucination. That's anomalistic because this is, there's absolutely no explanation for these kinds of events. Now you've, hold on now, you've confused me. <laughs> yes. You've managed to confuse me more with that. Now I'm confused. Um, 
So wait a minute. So are they all are they all together? Are they around in different parts of of let's say the same city? And and are they seeing the plane, or they're all seeing a UFO? Well, that's the thing is that they see something in the sky. The the I would say the object that is at the source of you see is just a mountain plane. Mm-hmm. However, their perception is being modified, okay. and they see something different. But only those five or six or ten people see that. But they see the same thing, and they're not connected to each other. Okay. That's what is an anomalistic. So if you talk about UFOs as, in some instances, as a shared telepathic hallucination, if you want, that's truly anomalistic because we're in the realm of the transmission of information by non-normal means. But the ultimate object behind is not abnormal. Mm. So, again, it's, a ma- it's not a matter of either or. Oh, there's a plane in the sky, therefore nothing happened. Well, no, something happened, but it was not in the sky. It was among the people. Right, right. Well, this is, I think this speaks to what you're talking about in the very early part of the book, about the double dynamic of the personal and the impersonal with regards to UFOs and how it's there's two sort of elements to it, and it's very flummoxing how these can work together at the same time, but they seem to do that. Yes, I, this this probably is the most challenging um, aspects of UFO is that experiencers have a very personal experience uh, that there and it's their own, and no one can really challenge what they live because they live what they live, and yet um, other elements, the other aspects of their experience is part are actually shared with others or produced by something else that is has nothing to do with them. Mm. So they have a very personal experience into a, a much larger experience that would be uh impersonal. If I can make an analogy with simple things, it's like if you're if you are in a in a crowd, uh angry crowd during a demonstration, that's the impersonal force. And yet you as an individual, you may have a very nice chat with the police officer that tries to control the crowd. And you have a very different personal experience than the overall impersonal or collective experience. So but these, these phenomena are, are seen in, not just in, 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 uh, in parapsychological situations, but in normal situations. And again, it's just a, way, a different way to look at the UFO. So, again, if you think about the UFO wave, um, like in Belgium and many other places, uh, people saw very different things, and yet they were in the same city. And so they had the personal experience that was quite different. Mm. And yet there was one larger experience happening in the town or in the country about UFOs. And the fact that one a witness saw, let's say, a saucer-shaped uh, uh, object, and two dozen others saw a rectangular and a two dozen saw a triangular one. doesn't matter. It doesn't make it false. People have a personal experience, and there's the larger wave as a different set of experiences mm-hmm. that need to be analyzed on its own terms, rather than be reduced to an accumulation of individual observations. Okay. Like I said, folks, this is... Strap yourselves in. <laughs> This is we're getting deep into this stuff. Um, well, 
let me ask you this then. So, so you're saying I want to go back in a sense to the analogy that you were, you were the the uh, scenario that you painted here of the five people. They mistake the plane for UFO. You say uh, something anomalous is happening here. I guess let's take that further and sort of apply what you're suggesting here. What, I mean, what are you suggesting that? That one person of the five is conjuring this this sort of vision for the other four, or it's a collective, or or, or what? Well, um, the uh, the research in parapsychology into what's what we, we can call the collective psi, or if you think a lot of people, thousands of people, we can call it social psi. Um, well, the, the research that was done is uh, with small groups is that everyone is contributing into it, and the end result is not really um, the the output of one particular individual. It's the output of everybody, and so this this uh, this thing uh, then looks seems to be completely foreign to the individual. I'll give you a very specific example. Let me just jump in and ask you just so because I think I, I think I'm getting it. <laughs> so okay. in a in a sense, let's say I look up at the plane, okay, and you're you're across town, you look up at the plane and like two other people do too, and it's sort of at that moment it's like almost all these like strings connect to just the information, let's say, for lack of a better term, of this dot in the sky. And then then there's some kind of synthesis. That's it. Absolutely, it's uh, it's the synthesis of people's unconscious mind being uh, projecting things and yet connecting with others at the same time. That's amazing. But this this connection is is not the property, if you want, of any particular individual. It's something they created together, not even aware they're creating this together. Wow, that's amazing. It makes sense. It's exciting in a way. It's like the old idea of, you know, your your girlfriend's across the country and you're like, I'm looking at the same moon you are. It's like that romantic idea. Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, a famous experience in this field, uh, in the parapsychology here, was what's called the Philip experiment. It was done in the early 70s uh, in Toronto. And there's a group of people who created an artificial ghost. Uh, so they... Together, there was sitters, so seven or eight of them, and they worked together in creating a story of someone who was deceased and, and started to, put, uh, to flesh out the story as they go with their seance. And eventually, um, something started to happen that um, the, the creature, quote-unquote, they created, started to respond by psychokinesis, by knocks on the table. And they started to ask questions to the, the, the thing they created, and it was answering back. But it was not the creature itself. It's all these unconscious together that was putting energy in something and, and, and responding back to them. But, so, but they consciously created a ghost. Quote, hmm. quote. That's a, a very fascinating uh, experiment. Right, right. Is this, this is also kind of like the Tulpa idea. Similar, although uh, the Talpa is, um, uh, I think it's a quite misunderstood concept. Um, if you read the book uh, by uh, Alexandra Niels, um, there's six pages in our entire book about this. That's it. Um, and really, again, she saw that monk that she created 
And she she said that someone else saw it, but just in the corner of her of his eye. Hmm. Um, so again, is it an hallucination, but shared telepathically, something of that nature? Even that is anomalistic, and but doesn't mean that that monk has a true physical presence in 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 a, in a strict sense of the word. Right. right. So so again, it's it's, uh, it's okay. the, the anomaly is that they share the same information. Hmm. All right. Now, what I thought was interesting in the book is that you, you spend uh, quite a bit of time sort of, um, what's the best way to put it? I guess sort of showcasing, highlighting, talking about sort of possible, and I'm using, I guess, yeah, I shouldn't need, I don't need quotes here, natural causes for the UFO forms, like ball lightning, plasma, and sort of electromagnetism uh, effects, if you will. I thought that was interesting, and it sort of ties into the idea, like uh, when I first asked you if this is uh hallucination or not, because there's a part of me sort of coming out of the book that, that thought maybe you were also suggesting that, that there's a psi element that might be able to conjure these things like ball lightning and plasma. Yes, I, uh, I started to talk about, uh, let's say, shared information, but that doesn't mean that in other situations there's no uh, physical uh, agents, right. I mean, non, non-human agent, non-intelligent non, uh, agent involved. Uh, one of them that is is a, a very strong uh, culprit in all this is uh, plasma. Either uh, it's created by uh, very odd weather conditions, that's, and um, or it's created by uh, the earth coming out from the earth. Um, these 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 seems to be involved in many UFO sightings. But what the thing we the research has shown is that these are highly magnetized. And uh, high magnetism has an influence on the human brain. It makes us, quote-unquote, hallucinate. Um, but also, um, high magnetism, according to some researchers, enhance psychic capabilities at the same time. So, uh, again, there might be a physical object, although it's kind of a bubble of, of stuff, of hot gases, um, that interact with us in the sense of through um, the uh, the electromagnetism. Uh, they influence our brain and strangely enough, we human beings have the capacity also to influence electromagnetic systems. Hmm. So research in parapsychology are pointing to to this uh, distinct possibility. So if you if if you uh, are encountering one of those bubble, it may actually set your brain to see something different and you will interact with that bubble in certain ways that are um, quote-unquote again an hallucination you will see things that you project into it you won't see the bubble right uh, right and you almost don't even need to see you almost and there's also the idea that maybe you don't even need to project an image on because if it's a bubble I mean how isn't like one of the classics just a ball of light people see a ball of light and they think it's a UFO it's like kind of makes it makes you what you're saying even more uh, palatable. Yes, but people may see things that are quite different than the bubble. They can see a manufactured object. They can see uh, entities. Um, oh, okay. So that can lead to these types of um, hallucination, quote unquote, again. But again, what is interesting is that when people start to have sh- to shared and we think telepathically shared those hallucinations, it becomes quite interesting. 
and it gives a different explanation to the UFO event. Hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we kind of established here that you're not just saying that these are these are straight up like hallucinations, but there's also this possibility that people are conjuring things, and then also that the electromagnetic element of all this it does seem like electromag. There needs to be more, you know, study into that whole thing because uh, how maybe this is a really mundane question. I apologize, but like if someone saw one of these, how far away does the bubble have to be to, to influence someone? How strong is this electromagnetism? That's a very good question. Oh, thank you. Uh, the um, we know that to to really hallucinate, uh, you have to be very close, a very strong source of electromagnetism. So the question is that if uh, if let's say there is a ball of plasma in the sky, it could be a quite a distance from you. How does that influence, or how does it connect with your brain? That we don't know. Uh, and and that's um, that's an unknown. So, um, but again, it, uh, the fact that there is something strange in the sky makes us at least uh, think about mm. UFOs. And then uh, and then there might be other conditions uh, that we don't understand that that uh, enhance the capacity for us to have some sort of interactions with that bubble. But that's like I, I don't go into that in my book because the science about this is really uh, embryonic. Mm, okay. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Can is it considered dangerous? Like, do they do tests with this electromagnetic uh, stuff? Because I'd be interested if they could just like generate one. Not if they can't generate, you know, the uh, the, the bubble. It would be interesting if they could somehow generate some uh, proxy for the bubble to see if they could influence people somehow. Well, uh, this the uh, the Canadian uh, researcher uh, Michael Persinger hmm. that did that kind of experiments, and that that's where we know that uh, close proximity to sources of electromagnetism uh, does induce uh, various types of um, images, and, and and that that are felt as very real and very vivid. Uh, he did other researches, though. Um, uh, one in, one in when I talk about the two-way street, uh, there was a, uh, a poltergeist problem in the house. And one of the things that was well measured is was the, a young woman that she slept uh, in her bed and her head was very, very close to her electrical alarm clock. Huh. And, she, and the time on the alarm clock moved way faster than the normal time. So she was influencing also that electric uh, electronic equipment and, and but an alarm clock does not produce a lot of electromagnetic field so again how much you need to have an interaction it, it's hard to say but in that one example uh, it seems that you don't need a lot Jeez, I keep my alarm clock at the foot of my bed and uh, right by my head and it run always runs like two minutes slow so I don't know <laughs> that makes me nervous I feel like we've laid all the groundwork we need here because I want to get into now sort of uh, this uh, and I don't I really I, I'm sure I don't even know if he's still around but I I don't have the man's name and you can fill it in uh, I'm sure uh, but the the, the the sort of big tentpole of the book the sort of uh, the, the the device if you will that you use to sort of uh, put into these cases and look at them with the parapsychological hypothesis is this uh, model of pragmatic information 
which is uh, a four-step series of events, let's say. Uh, you'll, you'll, I'm going to have you give everybody the explanation, but I'm going to give them a short one, uh, which is like surprise, displacement, decline, and then suppression. And, and, and what Eric has done is sort of applied this, which comes from the study of poltergeists, to UFO cases, and it's amazing how it matches up, folks. It really is amazing, and that's what we're going to really dig into now. So tell people about this this model of pragmatic information, it sounds daunting, but once you sort of begin to work with it, it's, it's an, amazing, uh, an amazing way of looking at things. The scientist that developed this, uh, his name is Walter von Lukadu. There he is. He's a, he's a German physicist and parapsychologist, um, and he's running actually a, a parapsychological um, clinic, if you want, in Germany, in Freiburg, and he's a professor also at the University of Freiburg. Um, he so he did a lot of uh, empirical investigation. So he went in person and studied a lot of those poltergeist events, interview families, uh, interview the people involved, and uh, over time he, he noticed this this pattern that um, those four phases that uh, at the beginning it seems to start very slow, lots of intensity, then it declines and disappears. Uh, but what is more interesting is that he started to notice also that some people are more involved um, in certain phases, and it seems that the involvement of those people actually influenced the events. Um, <clears throat> so poltergeists are usually considered as being um, the, the fact of one person, uh, oftentimes a teenager, but not, not always. Uh, who has some very personal challenges at the emotional level but cannot express them for whatever reason. Uh, difficult family dynamics is, all, is usually the culprit here. And the uh, to use uh, psychokinesis becomes an alternate way to communicate and try to get attention. So what's going on is that at the beginning, the that person that... We, uh, that is called usually the focus person because the focus is on that person uh, and that person's environment. So the immediate family, the immediate friends have a surprise at the beginning. They they wonder what's going on, what is this? Hmm. And they start to look around for possible reasons. As the phenomenon continue, continues to grow, then usually it's when um, the, uh, the psychic Arrives the, uh, the the people with very strong beliefs in in uh, life after death try to counsel them to try to help them try to provide them with all kinds of um, of uh, ways to deal with this entity but usually what they do is that they actually reinforce the belief that whatever happening in the house is caused by a, a spirit a non-human entity. And and it's called displacement because of that reason. And instead of looking at the person's problem, which is the source of all this, they displace the problem in looking at all kinds of other things. And so that's where you have people try to uh, like uh, banish the, the the spirit from the house, and they do, do all kinds of rituals and get they get right. priests, depending on their belief system. And that's then that's when the, the phenomena really reach a, a very high point. But then, uh, 
usually after a certain time, for a few days, a few weeks, depending on the case, then uh, much more um, skeptic, skeptical observers arrive on the scene. Uh, and they start to take much more uh, narrow measurement about where the noise is coming from, where are everyone when something moves. Right. And and at that time, surprise, surprise, we have a, f- a phenomenon that is much less uh, intense and starts to disappear, uh, which is the decline phase. And uh, and at the end, um, usually you have a situation where the authorities have been involved or called upon, you know, the police or the social workers, and they're tired of this, and they want to, to put an end to this. I don't want, and that's usually they declare, then they declare that some fraud happened, or uh, people um, really just try to to pranks their neighbors, etc. Right, et right, right. And that's the cover-up, and that's when it ends. Hmm. Um, but there are uh, physics reasons also behind this, because uh, um uh, use the concept of non-locality. What it means, non-locality, it's based on a, on a physics experience. When you have uh, two protons that are launched into a tube, if you want, and then the, at the end of the tube there's a splitter. So it forces protons to go one to go to the left, the other one to go on the right. right. But what happens is that their spin, the way they turn on themselves, is exactly the same, even though they're not connected with each other. And, and that puzzle scientists quite a bit. How can two particles share the exact same information without being connected with each other and being part of now two different systems? Mm-hmm. So that's the notion of non-locality. So they share information without being together. So you use this idea and say, well, why, why, why not look at this at the macroscopic level? So we have near, you know, the macrophysics and the macroscopic level, then people would share also uh, information non-locally, and that's when things happen. So telepathy in this uh, situation is that people think the same thing at the same time. This is, that's an example that is of non-locality. And what uh, Lukedu noticed is that these things can only happen if the, the people, the systems, as he calls it, uh, do not determine the uh, thing. So in your head, when you're, uh, I'll give an example for telepathy, it usually happens when we're absent-minded. We're uh, looking at the sky or we, we're not really thinking. And that's that our mind is in a state of flux. Mm-hmm. That's, to use the, the words of uh, Bonokedu is indeterminate. And that's just the time where these non-local connections can happen. So... Go back to poltergeist. Has the phenomenon is not on the focus person, then everybody is looking around, try to find a spirit, to try to find some some religious explanation. So the the system that is really producing this, so the, the focus person and and the uh, the environment is indeterminate. So it allows the phenomenon to grow. When the skeptical observers arrive on the scene. They actually narrow every single possibility, and therefore they reduce the indeterminacy in the system. Mm. And so psi phenomena has way less chances to happen in those circumstances. 
And that that is backed up by all, all the lab research that parapsychologists have done, is that if you have a very, very stringent experiment, you will produce nothing. You have to allow free flow of the unconscious mind to, to, to be liberated and do whatever it wants. Then you have more chance to have a, a psi effect. Right. And then at, and at the very end, uh, because authorities, you know, they don't like to have stories of poltergeist, you know, houses where <laughs> yeah. all kinds of things going on. So, so they really crush and put an end to any forms of, of, um, of, uh, indeterminacy by declaring that's actually a fraud, uh, by, uh, encouraging people to come forward. Sometimes even these court cases, uh, happen in Germany. So they really crushed the whole thing. Hmm. So that's the uh, what happened with poltergeist. And like you mentioned, I've seen very similar pattern if you look at UFO waves, at least in a number of them. Yes, yes. We're going to get into that in a moment. Uh, in the decline stage, is it possible that a big part uh, of the decline, too, is that by human nature – indeterminacy would would lessen because this thing's been going on and people kind of like the first impression stage is over and people just come to some kind of conclusion whether they're right wrong or 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 blue in the face you know what i mean like some people are just like straight up it's a ghost other people you know so so there's sort of a disbursement of people instead of everyone being like i wonder what this is everyone sort of like has take sides i guess if you will um when people take sides, uh, as long as they take sides uh, with the, the notion that it's uh, non-human forces that create that, it actually allows this the phenomenon to continue for a longer time. Ah, okay. Um, that's because, again, they don't look at the actual problem. Because in a poltergeist event, when you have a person who is in emotional distress, uh, unless their distress is, is some sort, somehow relief, they will try to find, again, to, uh, to send uh, a message. cry for help, yeah, yeah. a message. And so, so that's really the determinant. Um, but in, in a classic poltergeist case, um, eventually people figure out, okay, you know, these things only happen when so-and-so is in the room. And, you know, when that person is away, never anything happens. So then they start to focus on that person, and then that person starts to get attention, which is the first step to be able to talk about your problem. Right, so right, right. You have the attention of people now. And, and that's also uh, at that time, as I mentioned earlier, that to be able to keep the attention, then they oftentimes they start to engage in trickery. Right, that's so the next thing I was going to ask you about. Yeah. That, that, has anybody ever sort of... It would be interesting to find out these people who are in these positions. Do you know what I mean? Because it would be interesting to know what was in their mind when they decided to start hoaxing. Because did they know that they had were causing it all along, but they couldn't figure out why? Or I mean, that that's kind of an interesting avenue to to explore in a way. Yes, although uh, I mean, people were interviewed about this uh, by parapsychologists and were themselves psychologists, so they they. They really uh, went into depth with this, and and, and it's really uh, the need for attention, yeah, um, because they need it, and so they find ways to get it. And um, uh, when the phenomenon starts to decline, 
then people pay less attention to this. They pay less attention to them. Mm. And it's, it's an unconscious process. People usually don't think this through. They just act on it. Uh, and they, they make a little noise here and they, they try to uh, <laughs> yeah. throw a, a glass uh, without when nobody is, is watching. Right. So, and, and, and again, this, this is a, the challenge of all these types of phenomena is that they're never pure. They're always a mixture of genuine anomalies hmm. and other things. I guess the question I had though was, uh, has anyone ever talked to these focused people and has any of these focused people ever sort of explained or, or, or said, yes, I was doing these things with some kind of psi ability I don't understand, but then as people came along, I couldn't do it anymore, but I, I felt the need for the attention, so I then I faked it, I, is what I'm asking you. Do you know what I, you get kind of what I'm saying? Um, some people, I, I mean... I'm sure, like, victims or quote-unquote, uh, the, oh, the focus people in these cases, uh, they're already few and far between, and then to get them to open up in an honest fashion is probably even more difficult. So I know I'm kind of like asking for the moon here, but I figured uh, I wonder if anyone's ever kind of come forward with with that kind well, of Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, some people came came uh, forward saying, yes, you know, I I did things, and all, but you know, they were teenagers, so they were acting impulsively. Then they are interviewed, you know, a number of years later as adults, and that and the chance to reflect, and yes, they would admit that they were looking for attention uh, and, and continue the attention they were getting because of the phenomenon. But the actual production of the phenomenon, they are not aware of it uh, because this is the unconscious part of the mind that produces them, Right. and they're not aware of it. They, they, they are usually as surprised as other people around at the beginning, uh, definitely. Yeah. Oh. Okay. But when they talk to them later in retrospect, are they aware of it then? Well, the, uh, the, if they had the chance to have a, you know, a, a good discussion with uh, someone who knows uh, about these things, then um, they definitely would agree that they had some very serious challenge emotionally, hmm. and that um, the the we say that the, the, it happens at the same time that they had those challenges. So they kind of see that they are probably having a role to play in this. Yeah. But again, depends who, who, with whom they debrief afterward. Because yeah, yeah. uh, if they're in the hands of uh, true believers in spiritism, then... Um, <laughs> Good luck to them. It won't happen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've set everybody up here with... Uh, this is kind of like step-by-step, step, and I really do appreciate you, Eric, uh, trying to help me out with this. Because <laughs> I, I really do love what you've done with this book. So... So what you're saying now is we apply this model of pragmatic information, the surprise, the displacement, the decline, and then the suppression. We apply this to UFO waves, and what do you know? They fit. That's the amazing part. I guess, when did you even come up with sort of doing this? Like, how did this even, I mean, kudos, man, for for putting this all together, but like, were you just like, wow, what happened here? One of the things that uh, I I started with, uh, because I'm a sociologist, so I look more at larger groups, uh, you know, entire population. And, and I, I, I had this intuition, I would say, because I had nothing more than that at the time, that maybe psi can happen when there's a lot of people involved, but it of course takes a different shape. 
And then I started to say, well, okay, maybe UFOs are just that. And the first case I really look into um, was the uh, the UFO wave of 1952 uh, centered around Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And um, I started to see a couple of things that were really odd. Um, it happened at a very specific time of, uh, of tensions in Washington. Uh, Actually, um, at the uh, within uh, the time of the Democratic Convention, it was a time of McCarthyism was very intense. So there's a lot of factors. That it's strange that it happened in that city at that time. So there's a lot of things accumulating. So I figured, well, maybe we have some sort of poltergeist using, but has a UFO shape rather than uh, object in a house. But it's not one person or a small group of person, but hundreds, maybe thousands of people that mm. actually have some sort of influence over that. Yeah, it's like a poltergeist for a, for a, for a region, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting way of putting it. Uh, I hadn't really. Uh, that's that's a that's a great way of putting it. So I guess you now you cover three separate major uh, cases in the book, and then a couple of other ones. Um, do you, I, I don't, I, I hesitate to give away the book, but I want to, I want to cover one of these waves, and I think the DC one resonates the most with people, unless there's some other wave or case or something that you didn't put in the book that you want to, <laughs> that you want to talk about, uh, so, so folks, you know, don't get the whole thing, but, but, uh, I feel like, I, I feel like we can best explain all this by, by showing it in action, uh, with the DC wave. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, but um, again, just just to just to show that the power of this uh, the MPI is that uh, I'm in the mid- middle of writing an, uh, an article for a uh, um, parapsychology journal where I use the Marian apparition of uh, in Egypt of uh, the late 1960s, and so we're not talking UFOs here, but the the pattern is the same. Uh, the involvement of skeptics, the involvement of believers, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's fascinating. Right. So you say you can apply this to the, to the Marian apparition, uh, from the As 60s. Well, so yeah. the, this, the, this, the model has a lot of strength. It's, it's, I'm telling you, Eric, I'm, I'm praising you to the high heavens here. This is some, this is some, you know, thank you for bringing this to the attention of, uh, me and all the listeners with this amazing book. So, Let's let's dig in, I guess, to the DC wave. Let's walk people through it. They because that's the one I think is most palatable to this audience. They've heard of the DC wave relatively, so you don't need to really uh, give them, you know, uh, uh, the whole the whole nine yards on what it was all about. I mean, it was a 1952 wave in over Washington DC. You're going to fill in the, the pertinent details to the uh, to the MPI. So, you know, without any further ado, I'm just going to get out of your way. Explain explain how this all works together. All right. Well, the uh, the wave uh, actually one of the things that I noticed is that, and I'm not the first one, of course, to do that. But UFO waves tend to have um, a center, or tend to be focused in one specific area or a couple of specific areas. If, if the wave lasts longer, in the case of the Belgian one, for instance, but. The wave was general in the United States, and but in the month of July, 1952, that was the most intense month of unexplainable uh, UFO observations. And uh, so that that's the first thing is that if 
if you look at the wave, there seems to be a center of it or an epicenter, uh, like an earthquake, if you want. Mm-hmm. There's one place that seems more important. And Washington DC, um, the two, the two sightings over two weekends, uh, are the center of that center. And it's really the most intense part of the wave in July that happened. So that's the first thing. Uh, there is some sort of, uh, uh, geography to it. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's the first thing that I, I found intriguing. Then the, the timing is also, uh, was interesting because, uh, the two, the two main events of the, the, the DC wave were very closely aligned with the, the Democratic Convention, uh, of 1952, where they selected, uh, Adelai Stevenson as the, uh, the, the candidate for presidency. Um, and, and, and at that time, there was a lot of tensions among the civil service because there was the, the McCarthyism, so really, uh, people were paranoid about having Soviet spies everywhere, and the government, federal government, put a lot of, uh, rules in place to limit, uh, what, uh, the civil servants can do. A lot of them lost their job on simple suspicions that were completely unfounded, we discovered later on. So there was a period of very tense time. Right. So, so that's that's another key element, and um, and then um, one of the things that uh, if we go back to Paul's guide, people want to have attention. So usually the the, the phenomenon grabs the attentions of the people that the person, the focus person, really need. Uh, and in the case of the the DC wave. It's clear that where these phenomena appeared, somehow the uh, the military was called. It, it was they could not have not seen that uh, message. Uh, and though that it started in a civilian airport, the first thing these people did is actually check with the military. You know, do you have the same uh, radar signal we got? Right. And so. So this this adds to this notion. Okay, we have a period of te- high tension, McCarthyism. We have phenomena that seems to seek the attention of the military, and then now we know, after the fact, of course, we have the benefit of the hindsight that in, that's actually the U.S. Army that stood up to McCarthy, Senator McCarthy, and uh, brought an end to this nonsense. Um, so it seems to be somehow that. There is a collective premonition that their best ally to get rid of this very uh, difficult time, and uh, civil servants couldn't speak about that. You know, they were completely uh, muzzled about this issue. Right. Um, these were seeking out somehow the uh, the involvement of the military. I mean, this symbolically that you the whole wave seems to be centered around this notion. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. This is your theory, essentially, that the muzzled, frustrated people conjured up this, uh, this, this UFO wave in order to draw the attention of the military, and maybe you think it was sort of like uh, it, it presaged the, uh, the ultimate end of the McCarthy thing. As, yes, and as well, they were seeking the uh, the attention of the Democrat, 
the Democrats. Who, uh, mm, okay, yeah, because that. And, and yeah. interestingly, you know, the uh, um, uh, Stevenson was one of the big enemy of uh, McCarthy. So, the timing of all this and how the the phenomena uh, made itself uh, available to people, so to speak, is quite uh, is quite odd. And, right. And, uh, so that's. That's where uh, I'm starting to think, okay, that looks like a lot like a poltergeist because these events usually have some sort of symbolic meaning in that family. Mm. And then if we put it at the social level, we seem to have some sort of symbolic meaning associated with the, uh, the UFO wave as well. Okay. And it bears mentioning because the... <laughs> Because the program has been all of America, and the way the state of America today, uh, folks, Eric has no dog in the in the fight of Democrat and Republican. So, in case anyone's listening who, who still harbors, oh no, I'm Canadian, <laughs> you know, so uh, exactly, just, yeah. uh, excuse. <laughs> you got to say it nowadays, though. That's the scary part. Um, okay, so so you so you sort of have this idea that it's this that it's this poltergeist esque activity going on. Then you apply the MPI to it. So let's apply the MPI to it and explain to folks how how chillingly apt it is. Yes. Well, it, the phenomenon starts gently. There's some couple of observation uh, in the afternoon, uh, late afternoon, but nothing big. And, and then uh, then this uh, uh, radars at the uh, the national airport that starts to show strange things. And people are surprised, and that's a surprise state. Uh, they check with others, uh, the military uh, radars, and some people on the ground actually saw something weird. Uh, so everybody's surprised, and, and some of the people who saw on the ground, they saw something moving at huge, like accelerated very, very fast, uh, much faster than any planes were available in those days. Mm-hmm. So there's a surprise there. People didn't know what to do with it, but they were really surprised. And a bit worried also, which is kind of the feelings that people have normally at the beginning of a poltergeist. That's a surprise phase. Right. And it stays like that. The, the press uh, mentioned this, uh, but uh, at the, the, the first weekend, not a lot, I would say, happened beyond the surprise. The second weekend, though, I guess people had a chance to talk and the rumor, rumor mill had uh, was doing its job. And then... People were ready to see, you know, a full UFO and therefore maybe aliens from outer space show in the, in the sky. And so at the national airport, there was a lot of journalists, you know, waiting to see what was going on, looking for this. And the phenomenon actually increased in intensity and to the point where the military, uh, were called and, uh, sent two jets to, or at least two jets to try to intercept that thing, that light in the sky, uh, to no avail. And again, there was all kinds of very strange uh, uh, behavior by the, uh, the so-called objects. And whenever the, the, the attack radars were locked on, and then the object makes very quick, strange moves to get out of it, which is interesting if you look at it from the point of view of um, the, uh, the MPI, because if you have a, a radar of a jet, a fighter jet, um, that locking its radar on an object, then you you reduce very significantly the indeterminacy of what it is, 
And they never had, the military never had a chance to actually reach that point. As soon as there was the lock on, one second later it was, it was gone. Hmm. Um, so this looks a lot like a displacement phase in the sense that the journalists said, hey, you know, flying saucers, because uh, the next day, uh, overran uh, jets and uh, even the Democratic Convention uh, in one edition of the Washington Post at least uh, lost the first page to the UFO story. Let me jump. So, let me just. I have a one question here. I'm conf- I'm, I'm in tr- very in tr- into this. So, <laughs> so you're saying though when the jet locked on, it's like it. It's like at that point. The, the the number of possibilities that this thing could be is is reduced so small that it can then it can no longer exist. Well, the, the thing is that if we follow the MPI, mm-hmm. then yes, exactly. Then the the phenomena would stop because wow. then we we have uh, enough information to know what's about. And but the they were never able to reach that point. Right, so, right. So, so it's as if there was other forces at play. Mm. Uh, try to prevent that to happen, to keep the attention on another story, people from outer space visiting Washington, D.C. Okay. So, so yeah, see, because I'm just completely blown away by that whole idea that, you know, that once it locks on, they know what it, they, they think they know what it is, and once you think you know what it is, it can't it can't be that anymore. That's... That's it. Yeah, and that's it. That's <laughs> a key challenge of parapsychology. You want to have proof that there's an anomaly. So you want to be sure that uh, there's no trickery and everything is controlled. By the very fact you do that, you create the conditions where the phenomenon will not happen. Wow. And that's that's one of the major issues in, in parapsychology. Okay. Now, I, I, feel free to continue. I apologize for jumping in there. but No, no, no problem. Bear, bear noting. So and then and after the the second weekend, um, then uh, a few days later, I can't remember the exact date I'm right now. But uh, eventually, there is a, a press conference uh, by the military uh, with uh, the um, Ruppelt, so the the guy in charge of the Project Blue Book, and they basically dismiss the whole thing. So. Uh, and they actually got involved in to try to study in more details what happened and look at the tapes from the radars. And they concluded that it was, uh, uh, as uh, probably everybody knows, uh, temperature inversion, which probably there's a number of things that were probably caused by that. But the, the, the very strange movement of those objects on the radars cannot be explained by, right. by it. But that was put aside. But he had people who found part of the explanation that probably some of those points on the radar were indeed uh, temperature inversion. Hence, then you you have a way to say, okay, we had a very clear look at this, and we know what it is now. So it gives much less possibility to the the phenomenon to continue. Yeah. And then you have the decline uh, happening. And the decline was... uh, in the entire uh, region. That's where the wave of 1952 started to decline. Hmm. And then uh, several months later, you had the the famous uh, Robertson Committee uh, that was struck together to try to deal with this UFO story and really to put a lid on this. Now, some people, of course, in the conspiracy theory world would say, oh, because you know they know about aliens and they don't want the population knows. 
But the more uh, prosaic explanation, very much like in the case of of, of Poltergeist, the government was tired to receive reports from civilians and consuming time and energy on this, so they wanted to put a lid on this because it's very annoying to deal with this, like in the police with the poltergeist. There's right. no, for me, I see it, it's a very strong parallel. And uh, if you read the report, it's very clear that they tried to put a lid on So there's the quote-unquote cover-up period where this, this is, that's enough, nothing happened or nothing worth a mention happened. Now, the report remains secret uh, for many years, but it gives a good idea of the, the mindset of the authorities at the time. Try to put uh, an end to this uh, very annoying disturbance. Right, right. So so it's, it, this this the whole story has the same kind of curve uh, of uh, poltergeist. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, now, I guess the, the a one part I, I want to sort of dig into a little more is um, these things are, in some instances, in this case and in on plenty of other cases, these things are showing up on radar, and that's an instance where it's sort of machine, where it's a machine's perception. But I guess are you saying sort of that maybe the human can influence the machine to show it that it's seeing it, or how, how do you reconcile all all that, all the, the the problem of perspective, if you will? Well, I, I don't have the answer to that. I mean, but there's a couple of hypotheses we can. We can take, but one one of the one of them is that they could have been uh, actually uh, earth lights or balls of plasma uh, that were there at that time. Because right. uh, there was actually an earthquake, a significant earthquake in California uh, around the same time, uh, a week apart, I think. So so there was some significant seismic activity in the United States. Now California and DC is quite a distance, I understand. But uh, these things can travel, and we, we know some of them can last for a long time. So that's one possibility. Another possibility, of course, is that somehow um, there were a mixture of maybe influencing the radar by psychokinesis and temperature inversion that showed. So it's a mix of both. Okay. So so these are hypotheses, but really I don't have the answers, and we'll, we will probably never know. Uh, in the end, what was producing this? One the, one as, one thing that, um, that uh, is uh, interesting, however, is that um, we know earth lights uh, can be uh, seen on radar, but not having no visual. And that's one of the things that the pilots uh, they they had uh, that thing on their radar, but they never saw. Uh, any anything in the sky, huh. which is that makes it very interesting. And again, it 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 leads towards uh, an Earth light explanation. But again, there's no proof. It's not a hard proof of it. Right, right. That's one of the more challenging aspects of the of the whole thing. Right. It's uh, yeah, yeah. In the book, you make a fantastic point too. Uh, I don't know if it's right in this section or or earlier or later in the book, but the point you make is. Uh, you know, it seems, I guess from your perspective, you have no real, uh, you don't really put much stock in the idea of a government cover-up. And you seem to think that it's more that the government is uh, institutionally indifferent, uh, I believe is the way you describe it. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, And not just saying... the U.S. government, like all governments. You point out that, the, yeah. that there's a pattern to that whole thing, too, which is interesting. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying that... Uh... 
people in the military and in, in, in intelligence in the past have uh, been uh, fully honest or sincere uh, uh, about the phenomena. I mean, the, there is this book, um, Project Beta, uh, written by uh, Bishop. Yeah, Greg Bishop. Yeah, Greg yeah. Bishop. And that's a, I mean, uh, he, he made an investigation uh, of uh, people in the U- U.S. Air Force intelligence. They use UFO story to try to distract a, a ufologist from putting his nose in, in top-secret research of uh, U.S. military communicating with satellite through laser. Yeah. And, of course, there is a Cold War. There was a very sensitive project. And so, and so those guys admitted, you know, without much uh, having to torture them, that yes, we did that, and um, it affected the individual uh, quite a bit psychologically, and they were a bit sorry about it, but in their mind, it, they were doing their job to defend yeah. their country. Um, and I'm not defending, you know, the morality of what they did, but what I'm trying to say here is that it was very easy for Greg Bishop to find out. So it was not a big conspiracy. It was, um, so I'm not saying that these types of situation never happen, but when we look at what do government know out of their research, if you look at many governments around the world, so I can name quite a few, but Canada, Britain, Australia, in this English-speaking world, we can think about France, Italy, uh, Russia, and former Soviet Union, Sweden, uh, etc. They all came more or less to the same conclusion with their own research, their own program. That in a different time frame, France did that in the 50s, Belgium did it in the 90s. That they came to the same conclusion that whatever it is, it's not dangerous. It does not constitute a threat to national security. Uh, the phenomenon is quite elusive, very, very hard to actually pin down because there's no physical evidence. Um, and you combine those two elements, so there's no threat to national security, it's a very hard study. For us, the military, and that's, that's our perspective, then it's not our business to get into it. The only difference, would say, I would say, is that some government were more willing to share with uh, civilians uh, what they had uh, gathered over the years. Uh, the best is probably France. I mean, they had a, you know, publicly funded organization that does research on UFO, uh, and they had access to military files for many, many, many years. Uh, another country uh, is uh, uh, completely different. This one is Uruguay. Since the early 1970s, uh, the military has fake um, reports of UFO. They do some preliminary analysis, and then it's available to anyone who wants to study it. So that, these are just two examples, but there are way more. Yeah. Um, so, no, there's no big cover-up. Uh, if anything, is that the military have, uh, you know, bigger fish to fry, and they really don't care about this and if someone else wants to do it perfect but just don't get in 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 our hair in my hair with these issues so that's the kind of the attitude and now i would say there's indifference i mean there's strange change in the skies yeah do we know what it is no so let's move on that's kind of the attitude right and i work with the military i mean the senior leadership and we have a lot of um officers from many different countries. I, I can't say that I do know quite well the, 
the military mindset of the 21st century. And yes, like this, this, most people are quite indifferent to this topic. It's not the big hush-hush thing that some writer would like us to believe. Hmm. Yeah, I found that in my very limited uh interactions with people who I, I would think would know more about UFOs. They seem more very indifferent to the whole thing than, uh, and, and, and I know them well enough to know that they're not like lying to me. So, uh, it's very interesting. Well, it's interesting too, in a sense, you point out in the book, I'm going to kind of jump around here. I mean, I could have you do all the cases. They're amazing. I want folks to get this book, Illuminations, the UFO experience as a parapsychological event, because he also looks at the Belgian UFO wave of 89 to 91 and, and applies the MPI to it and fits really amazingly well. And uh, then the Rendlesham UFO incident of 1980 that a lot of folks are familiar with. Um, now, I did, at the, at the risk of having you have to go through the whole thing with the Rendlesham UFO incident, I guess my question is, because that's a, a smaller case, a smaller handful of people. This is not like the D.C. wave. It's not a wave. It's an incident. Uh, we're kind of inventing nomenclature here, but I think it works in this instance. Uh, it's an incident. And in, in, in a smaller situation like that, do you think it has, there has to be a specific focus person to generate that case? Uh, I think uh, uh, in situations where you have something short-lived and very um, localized, chances are that maybe one or, or a few people uh, would be the focus person. Uh, again, this is based on this notion uh, from research on, on a group uh, psi that it seems that numbers have an influence. The more people, the more phenomenon seems to be, has the capacity to be, uh, substantive in, in its, uh, in its, uh, intensity. Hmm. So, again, it remains to be, uh, to be, uh, studied more in details, but there seems to be, uh, this notion that matter, number matters in these things as well. All right. All right. Yeah. Like I said, we're going to, uh, I don't want you to have to go through the whole cases here on these because they're amazing and I want folks to get the book and I have sort of more broad questions that I want to get into here. And that's, uh, it's interesting you say that changing who could be aware of the psi effects or anomalies also changes how the psi can be used to reach an unconsciously intended audience. And I, I the, the reason I sort of bring this up in a way is because, uh, the, the latest incident, the latest case you talk about in the books, like 1980, and it, we talked just now about the institutional indifference to UFOs. I think there's a social indifference to UFOs, too. I think people are, are indifferent to UFOs. And I wonder, then, if we're sort of applying the idea of a UFO as as sort of a social poltergeist, as we've kind of established earlier, um, if people just don't are so indifferent to UFOs, that's why we don't see these spectacular sort of UFO moments like we did, uh, you know, a generation or two ago. Absolutely. Um, the, whatever we, um, whatever we, we, we pick to, to get attention, I mean, we collectively, uh, will be based on what, uh, is meaningful. So, and, and things we can't imagine, of course. So, um, you know, in, in the past, you know, you would, people would see ghost ships. They would see ghost uh, carriage because they could not imagine other things. Uh, comes uh, um, 
the, uh, the space agent, we see UFOs. And then, yes, I think there's a greater indifference about UFOs, and there's all kinds of ways we can measure that, but the number of magazines about this is declining, uh, the number of UFO organizations declining, uh, et cetera. And therefore, my guess, if, if, I'm, if I'm using my theory as a, as a pred predictive tool, uh, something eventually will replace UFOs. What it is, I, I don't know. Hmm. And it's very hard to predict, but uh, there's, there's uh, definitely a, a lot of potential for this phenomenon to die or slowly disappear because it doesn't mean anything to people, or, or at least much less than in the past. That's crazy in a way, if you think about it. For someone who's spent like the last 15 years looking at this subject, it's it's like you're telling me UFOs could UFOs like a generation or two from now they could be they could be regarded as dragons. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and because uh, dragons and whoever had this, it was meaningful to them then. It, it's not to us now, so we don't see it as often. Uh, and but I'm sh something else will replace it, uh, or a group of things will replace it. I mean, because uh, people having uh, difficulties, emotional difficulties and challenges, that's uh, our human lot. And some special situations where, and we don't know all the, the variables that are at play here, but in some special situation, it takes the form of uh, paranormal phenomena. And uh, but the actual shape or content of it will be the one will be something that's meaningful to us. Uh, so if UFOs are increasingly seen as meaningless. Then less and less UFOs will be uh, will be observed. That that seems to me a pretty logical extension of all this. Uh, uh, what we know about parapsychology. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was as you were saying that I was thinking of like crop circles, that kind of thing. It might even be in a in a, in a sort of realm of of that idea. Well, the crop circle is is another example that something that is in decline and. Uh, and one of the things, if one way to look at it is, if you think about the MPI that you use, we use it at the super macro level. Mm -hmm. um, so crop circles started gently uh, way back in what the 60s, probably. I mean, there's some in the 50s, but uh, and there are older cases, of course, goes back to the 1600, but. Uh, the, the current one started gently, and, and so a surprise. What the hell is this? We don't understand. And then there's an interest that starts to to, to explode. Oh, that must be aliens uh, landing and sending us signals and complex figures. And then eventually, some more um, rigorous investigator figured out. Well, there's hoaxers that actually are quite involved in this. And, and then you know number of years later, then uh, uh, it becomes an industry of people, you know, just visiting these things as artwork. Uh, whether they're done by pranksters or they're done by uh, uh, anomalistic forces doesn't matter anymore. It's only the artistic value of the thing. So in a way, it's a gentle covering up of this. It's not the harsh one, hmm. but it's you know, the, the anomalistic aspect is actually not important anymore. So you have the same kind of curve, but it's, it's spread over years. 
and have many, many types, different types of people involved. So it, you can look at it that way. And so I I'm not, haven't done that, but maybe the, UI, the entire UFO phenomenon will also have this kind of macro, super macro curve uh, if we will look at it over a decade. Oh my God! I never thought of that. That's interesting. I'm gonna, that's what that's what I'll be rolling around in my head tonight <laughs> when I go to bed. Wow! All right, hold on one moment. I got to crack open a Red Bull here. There we go. Delicious Red Bull, folks. Well, I was kind of saving this toward the end, but I I I've really uh, grown to like you a lot here over this conversation. And it's like maybe you can help me out and talk me off the cliff here, Eric, because uh, you know I've said in the past on the show I've entertained this idea in the past on the show that these UFOs. I mean, I've implored to the audience, I've exhorted them, or I don't know the word, but I've assured them. I said, you know, these may come from our mind, and that's no less fantastic. But but in a way, sort of having read the book, having sort of embraced the idea, you know, tried it on like a pair of shoes, the idea that, that, that these UFOs are are from our mind, it's kind of sad in a way. It's a lonely, it's a lonely feeling, because cause the, the whole parapsychological part idea of stripping out the sentient other is is worrisome to me. I mean, I mean, we're getting into like a philosophical level in a way here, and I know that says probably a lot more about me than than anything we're talking about. But but I mean, what what do you think of that whole idea that like if we take away the outside influence, we're just back to being us stuck on this earth with no no uh, aliens beyond that, no interdimensional stuff, nothing, nothing, uh, no other. Uh, intelligence that we can interact with. Yeah, I, I agree that uh, what, what you described, uh, some sociologists have uh, used the world, uh, the, the dis- dis- disenchantment of the world. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yes, it definitely leads to that. However, um, if you look at it differently, uh, if we come to accept that us humans have this this fully understood uh, capacity. If we can find ways to to better to, to to use them more effectively, to 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 make them stronger, it can create also all kinds of new, very interesting possibilities and opportunities um, that could be of benefits for for the entire humanity. I mean, there's there's a, a very positive side to it. Hmm. A very simple thing. If if you if you approach both the guys <clears throat> from a, a psychologist perspective, a clinical psychologist, that's a clear sign that someone in distress and that needs help. And so so that that's actually a useful thing to have. And so if we put it at the uh, the macro level, if you have a UFO wave that seems centered somewhere, it's probably a sign that someone is in distress and needs help. And so we should, instead of uh, looking for aliens, try to find those people who need help. Actually, may or, or have a, a message for us, like a message that they have a premonition of something bad happening. If you know, I can relate here to the case of um, John Keel in Point Pleasant in West Virginia, um, that there was a premonition behind all this. So in a way, it can be a useful tool to to actually be happier on this planet. So it has at least that potential. Hmm. I see what you're saying. It's like if we can har- if we can understand and harness these abilities, there could be a whole, you know, it could be, maybe we could use these abilities to eventually find that other. So you're not saying the other isn't out there. It's just that right now, as we know it, we have no proof that there's another. Well, the other, uh, I mean, 
maybe they can we can eventually connect with them by telepathy. I don't know, but uh, so far uh, we don't have a whole lot of it. Right, right. No, I guess what I'm saying is uh, on a completely sort of Flintstones type of level, where it's like if we all develop telepathy and realize we have it, and then maybe we won't be fighting all the time. We can put our resources into building a spaceship and get out of here, and we'll find an alien, uh, you know, on Pluto or something. You know what I'm saying? It's like maybe maybe it could open the door to. Uh, to a more realistic discovery of another. Yes, but they can also open the, to the discovery of the other humans uh, on this planet that, you know, we have difficulty to understand, right? I mean, the person who is suffering in the poltergeist, you know, she, that he or she is misunderstood, right? So if we approach these phenomena from that angle, then it's, it's actually an opportunity to, to build a relationship with that person that is actually felt feels that she is, or he is alone. Hmm. So you discover the other, but it's the other human uh, that nice. is actually suffering. So you can't see it that way. And so that's a, that's a different twist to it. Now, I presume, given that it's sort of general knowledge, for lack of a better term, that like these poltergeist cases seem to come from a disgruntled teen or a distressed teen, uh, that there are cases where these things happen, and then they bring in like a like a professional who who talks to them, and then then it goes away. Does that generally? Because because part of what I'm absolutely cons- okay okay go ahead. Yes, uh, yeah, the, the inventor of the MPI is a Walter von Lukadu. He he actually does clinical parapsychology. So when there is a poltergeist, uh, whenever they are actually called. Um, that's what they do. Is the first thing is try to assess the family dynamics, and, and if anyone has actually particular uh, psychological challenges. And one of the things they notice is that when they start uh, individual and family therapy, these things goes away almost immediately. They stop like dead drop right away, because uh, and his explanation is that um, the uh, the message of of distress is being heard. So there's no need now to use those paranormal means right. to communicate that message. But that's very clear. Once people start therapy, when they start to talk with a, you know, a counselor that knows what he or she's doing, these phenomenon stops almost immediately. Good, good, yeah, because that's what I was going to say. I, there was a part of me that was sort of concerned that it's like, well, I hope people realize, like, I hope, I hope, I hope someone's trying this because uh, if, if we really think that, then the logical conclusion is get some help for these people. Um, well, here's sort of another. I'm going. To, I'm hitting a bunch of different points here, but uh, but you made me think about a lot of stuff. So forgive me. But but you know, we talk about this on the show every now and again uh, because I, I talk to a lot of folks here who are trying to figure this out. That's kind of my goal on the program: try and figure this out. I don't have any idea what it is, so I'm trying to figure it out. And that's why I love Illuminations because it's like it's you've come along and said, "Here's a tool to try and figure it out, Tim. Explore. Have fun." And I love it. And I guess the question is, we've sort of explored this on the program before and in the past, and so in light of your research, there's a problem in a way with UFO case collection, let's say. Uh, it's, it's very, it's, it's not exactly in tune with what we're talking about tonight. The question is, what do we need to do to sort of uh, get a better handle on getting better information from people who encounter UFOs? Uh, the, the thing that's missing usually, I mean, there are some ufologists who do that, but they're a small minority, uh, is actually try to, uh, 
know where the persons are, what's going on in their life, and what's going on in the bigger environment, you know, the surrounding areas. Um, and the bigger the, um, the wave, if it's a wave, then you have to look at the larger social environment. And they rarely do that. That's, so that's one thing that is, is awfully missing in, in UFO research is what was happening to people at the time. Now, unfortunately, sometimes these things are not known, and that's the problem, because if you have someone who is suffering but cannot really express it, it's hard to find. You will find it years later. Uh, but still, it's still a, a valid question to look at what was happening around. Um, and so, in a, in a way, uh, John Keel, when he investigated the Mount uh, Point Pleasant, if that's what he did. He tried to figure out what was going on in the community. Uh, now, he didn't figure it out that it was a bridge that was uh, problematic and could not probably have found out. But he, he was involved enough in the researching the community to make the link that has to be, this has to be something to do with the bridge falling and killing a number of people. Yeah. Um, so that that's it's really for me that the key is just to look at the larger picture. I always have the big picture in mind when you approach those cases. What was happening in that person's life? What was happening in that community? Uh, try to find out, you know, the angle and the altitude and the uh, the degree on the horizon of the thing. It, it's only useful to find out if there was actually a mundane object involved. But uh, definitely not uh, helping to understand the, the, the deeper dynamic that's behind it. Uh, I can give you a, an example of a friend of mine that uh, she uh, there was a, a UFO case in Toronto um, last year, last summer, um, and this, this this just illustrates that what was going on. Uh, that mm-hmm. there's someone called the police, and anyone in the news that because several people saw a strange object in the sky. And um, so after some research, they find out, oh, there was somebody uh, playing with a Chinese lantern. Um, and it explains the UFO that way. Well, my friend looked in this and more deep and figured out that actually some of the key witnesses were not looking in that direction. They were looking in the opposite direction. And it wasn't downtown, so there was big buildings. They could not have seen the lantern because the building's hiding it. Yeah. So she started to see that um, actually the people who were the only one who really saw the anomalistic object, not the Chinese lantern, were people coming out from a movie, and the power went out, and they just came out of the movie uh, theater, and they were in the streets because the power went out, and so so the something was happening. You know, people were into the movie, and unfortunately, I don't know what was the movie about. But um, the uh, and then their 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 thoughts were absorbed in the movie, and then suddenly it's cut down because power one goes out. They come out and they see UFO. They, this is probably the most interesting part of that story. Whatever uh, cause to see that thing in the sky, in my view, is kind of is secondary. It doesn't mean you don't research it, but it's secondary. It was this issue of power went out when they were watching a movie, it's probably the first entry to, to find out what caused that thing, in my view. That's, so that's a very different way to uh, to uh, study a case. Hmm. Well, we need different ways of looking at this stuff. That's the 
that's the key to it, you know? You nailed it in the beginning of the book. We've been looking at this for like 50 years, uh, seriously looking at it, and over 50 years, and it's, we're, we're still at, <laughs> we're still at square one on this. Now, I thought it was interesting, you also connect this in with sort of, uh, just to, just to sort of even flesh this out further, with, with contact cases. You know, you bring in the, the, uh, the contactee thing, um, then they, then abductions, and also, uh, sort of this, like, terroristic encounters that are, that are, that have been known to happen to ETs, and you, you sort of bring them all together into, uh, the idea that they can be seen through the prism of sort of a social change. Yes, I, um, in the book, I, I try to analyze uh, what the, the so-called aliens were doing, uh, but without putting, uh, I would say, uh, any uh, actual content, just looking at their behavior and, and then what kind of power relationship they had with the witness. And then this is a very useful exercise because it, 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 you can reclassify uh, aliens, quote-unquote, not on their look, but on what they do and how they do it. Right. And uh, so that gives you a completely different set of categories. I, I come up with three, but, I mean, a, a deeper analysis may bring more. Uh, but in the end, this, uh, this notion that uh, either the, the, in the case of the Space Brothers, um, there is this kind of uneven relationship, but the friendly one, so the transmit knowledge on the superior aliens and uh, the people, but to empower the people uh, to do utopian changes. And, and this happened in the 1950s, and that's interesting because it's about 10 years before uh, the flower power days of the 60s where people were actually doing this, you know, the, right. the small people. Ordinary people uh, take the streets and uh, try to change society, having all kinds of uh, utopian ideals about it. And, and it's interesting that to see that it seems to, to be a, some sort of premonition that things to come. Uh, in the case of uh, abductions, there's a clear, again, this is a very uneven relationship. The aliens superior, the humans are, uh, are lower, and... Um, but the focus of power here is really about mostly focus on, on reproduction, on sexuality, and especially for women. Um, and, and that is, again, the first case back to the early 60s, and it kind of um, anticipates this notion that, you know, women should be controlling their own uh, reproductive capacity, which is the feminist discourse that truly emerged in the 70s. So... Uh, Ten, seven, seven, ten years before, kind of anticipating that there's there, there will be some sort of a power struggle around this notion of, of reproduction. Uh, I mean, a social power issue. Yeah. Uh, and the terrorist uh, type of uh, aliens, the one that terrorize people for apparently no reason, it's absurd. And um, a lot of those cases emerged uh, at, at the beginning uh, in South America in the 50s. And again, it anticipates uh, the, uh, the the governments there that later on in the 60s uh, and 70s really started to use terror as a way to, to govern. Argentina um, is a good, well-known case, but Chile and Brazil uh, with uh, dead squads and, and so on. And um, again, it anticipated that time by about 10 years. So it's, it's, it's as if through this phenomena, 
we have some sort of collective premonition of things to come, mm. but it, it is expressed in very symbolic ways, which is the language of the unconscious mind, but somehow people felt there was something going on. But they were not sociologists. They could not read these things. They, 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 even sociologists could not read these things in advance, which makes it truly anomalistic from that point of view. Mm. Well, the difficult part of that, too, because I, I love what you've done here and I love those ideas, is sort of this this vacuum of time here between when I was born, 1980, and, and now, about 35 years. It seems like, what, what is there anything we can look at in that chunk of time that just sort of fits into all of this, that, 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 that we might be able to say, well, something's happening here, or something happened in the 80s that presaged into the 90s, or something, something happened in the 90s that suggested we'd be concerned about terrorism in, 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 uh, the aughts. You know, is there anything that you've seen in, in the, in the tea leaves, so to speak? I, that's a good question. No, I, uh, I haven't, uh, seen anything, uh, uh, at least related to uh, in alien contacts, uh, quote unquote, right. uh, that would kind of um, predict or anticipate uh, the, the the challenges that we have now, or which mostly are you know conflicts at different level, but religion being you know an important issue of that. Uh, no, I, it's a good point. Um, I'll suggest one thing, but it's not even a big aspect of uh, of the field or anything. But this this whole idea of military abductions. I don't know when they came up, but that's kind of a subgenre of abductions where it's like the military takes people who are abductees. Um, yeah, in this case, um, there's, there's humans involved in this uh, in this story. Well, they think um, they, they. I mean, the, the victims of quote unquote of of uh, the of the of the military abductions think there's humans involved, but if we're going with the idea that I mean the humans who the the, the military folks quote unquote who are abducting them could be as real as the aliens that are abducting them uh, in the scenario yes. we're playing out. Yeah, I, uh, I never thought of that, but uh, if you if you uh, if you see it as because uh, a number of of people are saying that because of 9/11 and then all the things that followed, um, Western societies now are more militarized than they were before, at least in the in the spirit, although military budgets are less than they were, but in the spirit there's, there's more military presence in, in the press and in people's consciousness. Then maybe it was an anticipation of those days. It could be. It's an interesting interpretation that I, I didn't. I, I didn't look into it, but it, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I'm kind of grasping at straws, trying to figure out, trying to fill that 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 hole of time. You know what I mean? Where it's like, what? Because it's because because it has to be. It has to be sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, paranormal, right? I mean, we can't just talk about sort of the the rise of uh, the militia. Uh, mindset and movement that sort of came about in the 90s. That hasn't, that's not paranormal, so it's, that's, that couldn't really apply to all this, right? Well, no, I, I think it, if, if you have something that has no anomaly, then uh, normal science should, should be able to deal with it, I mean, social science. Yeah. Um, one of the phenomena that is going on now um, is, is that more and more when people talk about um, alien contacts, Mm-hmm. It's very much uh, a return to uh, the Sprays Brothers, but by telepathy. The people having uh, feelings that they are in contact with the aliens. And, yeah. uh, 
Um, so, so that's interesting because uh, I don't know when it started. That's that's. But it could if it started in the in the early 1990s and late 80s, it may actually have uh, uh, anticipated the um, this day and age where we don't get in touch with people, right? Uh, through because a lot of the human interactions now are done through the internet yeah. rather than face to face, and that that changes dynamics to some degree. So maybe there's there's that gap you're looking for is is uh, with those uh, tele- return to telepathic communication with aliens, quote unquote. Right. Now I, I name dropped uh, I name dropped Jacques Vallée here earlier because because uh, he actually wrote the blurb on the back of your book and he he's such a forward thinker as well and uh, your stuff really reminded me of of his stuff and. It's interesting. I was really energized by the idea that he introduced last summer about putting together a, sort of like a database system. Uh, do you think that would help with your work uh, to be able to sort of uh, maybe, maybe you know, discern some kind of patterns? Yeah, I mean, uh, Jacques Valley uh, is, is, I mean, is a pioneer of. of, of of these approaches and really without him my 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 work would not exist i mean he really uh uh was the one who opened the way to, to a lot of those things and his uh, uh his his way of looking at that the phenomenon is is to open uh to, to various types of data as much as possible so um, and looking into people, what's going on in their lives, he's, he's, he's always been uh, supportive of that. So anything that can help uh, to have a little bit more, you know, uh, rigor in this, this industry is a big help. Yeah. There's no questions about that. Right, right. Especially because, like, I'm thinking, too, it would help to to try and find other waves that we could look at to see where, where uh, this MPI might apply. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, um, I mean, the, one of the reasons why I put the, the Rendlesham Forest case is to show that it applies also to small cases, not just big ones. Mm-hmm. So it was an illustration, uh, but um, definitely, yeah, it's a much underused approach. That I think uh, if people start to use it, and on many other cases, we we may find a lot of interesting stuff. I think so. I think so because there's, there's something in there that really resonates with me. It's it's really uh it just feels like it fits so much better than than anything cuz I think uh I don't know if it was Valet, but I'm sure many many people have sort of noticed that the just the sheer absurdity of this phenomenon lends itself to the idea that it has to come there has to be some sort of, sort of like mental element to it. You know what I mean? It's like this is the thing is just too strange at times to to fit into the idea that it's an alien that came down here. Yes, absolutely. And and, and if we keep in mind that uh, psi uh, effects are produced by the unconscious part of the mind, and but the unconscious part of the mind, its language is a symbolic language, and so if if we think that it actually expresses itself through psi and uh, all kinds of different manifestations. And then we have something that rationally appears absurd, um, then yes, but if you think laterally, it may start to make sense. Uh, I have one case uh, in my book, um, a Canadian case I mentioned, one element of of the the, guy that sees uh, aliens uh, landing, 
and then they leave and then he, he calls his coworkers and then they don't see anything. But uh there was oil find on the floor where the spaceship was. Mm-hmm. So the oil was uh taken and went for analysis and it was discovered that it was just regular oil, there's nothing special about it. Um and Bali um mentioned very, very often that in, in cases where there's some sort of traces, this seems so absurd and irrelevant. Uh, but if you put a symbolic twist to it in thinking laterally, then actually these are very important and useful clues because um, it happened in the region of Canada at the time was very polluted. And um, so, and there was some tensions in the, in the community because of the pollution, but there was the main industry and people didn't want to lose their job. Um, so if you think about the, this, the, that ordinary uh, object, it was oil, but was there somehow ended up there to symbolize the pollutions and the tensions of, in the community about pollution, then because we've done a lateral thinking on the symbolism, then it starts to make sense. But if you're thinking about uh, in an alien way or extraterrestrial way, of course it doesn't make any sense. Right. If it's a message from the unconscious, and we respect the language of the unconscious, which is symbolic lateral thinking, then this, these clues may actually be more meaningful than they appear on the surface. Mm. I guess where my mind then gets tripped up is where does that oil come from? I don't know, yeah. and no one will know. But the fact that it found itself there is, is meaningful in many ways. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, you know, it's just still confounding in a way. It's very, uh, it's very remarkable stuff. Now, uh, I should, I want to give a shout out. You did mention, uh, Greg Bishop's book, Project Beta. You should, I'm going to get in touch with Greg. He, I think he would love your stuff, uh, because we've had many conversations along these lines, uh, covering this whole idea that this stuff comes from the mind. Um, what's been, I get, I get, uh, this is a kind of a neat question. Uh, uh, the book's only been out for a short period of time, but I know that you're, in the Parapsychological Association. What's been the reaction from your colleagues to to sort of digging into this when it's kind of, uh, I wouldn't say verboten, but certainly like uh, not, not part of the menu of, 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 the, of that research? Um, so far, there there's have, have, didn't get much reaction because uh, most of them are university professor and uh, the, the school year is resuming, so they're very busy. Uh, we have to wait a few more weeks uh, before I hear about it. Okay. Um, so I have I, I had a handful of uh, of uh, reactions, but they are personal friends, so they're of course uh, enthusiastic about it. Yeah. But uh, the, uh, the the more uh, arms length colleagues, uh, I haven't heard from them yet. So we'll we'll see. All right. Well, I hope it. I certainly think it's going to open up a whole sort of realm of other people thinking along these lines and, and sort of examining this idea. Now, at the beginning of the book, you mentioned you started out blogging um, and, and, and blogging in French, which is which is cool. And then he turned and he started blogging in, in English. Um, are you still blogging? Is there? I guess the gist of the question is: Is there anywhere people can read more of your stuff? Well, there's the, uh, the there are a few uh, publications in in the uh, scholarly um, parapsychological uh, journals, so most people probably have a hard time to find them. But they are in the book. They are in the in the um, in the bibliography. Mm. So there's some stuff there. 
Uh, there's the blog, uh, but the blog, I haven't really worked on it uh, because I was finishing the book. Yeah. Uh, but there, there's a, and it's a blog, so um, there's a lot of typos and uh, <laughs> and sentences that uh, probably need to be reworked a bit. So it, it's kind of very informal, but there there is more of my ideas there and some speculations I make. Uh, I had um, a model for how I can move from uh, individual to collective. I, I never published it because I think it needs some more work. But uh, there's a lot of my ideas. Uh, I do a lot of uh, reviews of books and articles. So there's ideas that, you know, I present the ideas of the authors and then my own ideas of you know, what I think about this. So if people have, um, they will have to dig. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's tags and stuff, but you know, it's relatively, uh, disorganized. So, um, but if, if you have an interest, you will find a lot of stuff there. That definitely, you just have to be, um, to, uh, to be a bit patient finding, uh, you know, the, the, the posts that are more interesting to you. Where, where is it? What's the URL? Uh, it's called uh, Parasociology in one word. Oh, nice. Okay. Parasociology. And, uh, yeah, you'll find it. And, and it's, 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 I'm sure you're like, you just finished this book, so the last thing you want people bugging you about is what you're going to do now. But what are you going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> What's next for you? I love yes. your stuff. I want more, man. I want, I want you to like... I want you to fix ufology for me, please. Uh, <laughs> you know, I want to know. I want to know how this applies to other all kinds of stuff. So, what, what, do, what are you thinking about working on next? Uh, aside from sort of just chilling, having put the book out. Uh, you know, do you have anything in the works? Yes, I have things in the works. Uh, at this point, it's more I would say to refine the tools. Um, because one of the problems is that uh, you know when you apply. This to large waves, you still talk in, you know, at a higher level of generalization. But I really want to have tools that are more, I mean, analytical tools that are more, um, can dig in more specifics and smaller cases. So then, um, because one of the, one of the things I, I uh, the dilemma I have is every time Friends of mine are uh, telling me, "Hey, there's a UFO um, witness here." Or I have a hard time to, to tell. Them, okay, I know a number of questions I would like to ask. I know a number of data I would like to get, but I know also that there's a lot of things I'm not sure what actually I should look for um, because a lot of it is unknown. So. I, I my my next step is to re, try to refine the tools to um to look into those uh, events and so it, it's really digging more deeper in the the poltergeist literature and finding anything that it, it can extrapolate out of there and make it into more useful tools for uh, looking into UFO cases so that's that's kind of the the next step and of course uh apply it to real cases yeah. so um, yeah but this, in this case, in this situation, there would be, um, you know, lesser known cases and less extravagant uh, if you compare to the Belgian UFO waves or stuff like that. But closer to most of the UFO observations, which are usually relatively um, uh, circumscribed to a handful of people and it's only one night or, or a very, very short time uh, frame. 
So that, that's, I want to move towards that, that I need, I need the proper tools. And, uh, so the MPI is a good start, but I need now to go more granular and having more detailed tools to, uh, ask the right questions. Sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, if anyone could come up with some good tools on this, it would definitely be you, because, uh, the way you've synthesized this idea of UFOs coming from the mind is, uh, is fantastic. And folks, I, I've been raving about this book all night, and I cannot put it over enough. This is a must-read, folks, for people who are interested in this and trying to figure it out and who've been listening to this show for years and you're so frustrated like I am with the state of American ufology. I want to say that specifically. I, I, I loved how your book cited a whole bunch of sources from all over the world and, like, Belgian UFO papers and French UFO papers and stuff like that that, you know, that we need more scholarly work like that, and, and that's what this is, so... Illuminations, the UFO experience as a parapsychological event. Um, now, I don't think this was a parapsychological event, but I just in case you're like me and you have obsessive-compulsive and you, I don't want you to be left wondering what happened. Last night, we tried to do this show, folks. I alluded to it at the beginning of the program, and there was all this static when I started talking to Eric. And as a, anyone who long-time listened to the show knows, I'm using like an old-school 1980s Radio Shack telephone, and I'm like, oh, it finally died on me here. So uh, everything's closed. So I'm like, Eric, let me let me do the interview tomorrow night, and uh, and 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 you know I'll figure out what's going on here. So I get off the phone with Eric. I get on uh, my portable phone now. This is completely different. I, I unhook the 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 old phone. It's done. It's not even in the system anymore. It's not even on the on hooked up. And there's static on the portable phone too. And and I'm completely bewildered. And it's like something keeps coming on the line. Because it keeps saying line in use after I hang up the uh, the portable phone. Middle of the night, uh, I'm about to go to bed. Somebody texts me, so I, I get on the phone because I want to see if it's still giving me these problems. Talk for like a half an hour. Everything is fine. Completely confused. I wake up this morning, and, and it, 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 the, the line is dead. Somehow the whole line, in, the whole phone line in the house got completely blown out. So I have no idea what happened. It's never happened before to us on uh, doing the show. Uh, I had to actually go out and get a new modem from the cable guy. I had to do a whole bunch of stuff to make sure we made this interview happen tonight. Uh, but it's very weird. I found it very, I was really kind of, uh, put off by the whole thing because it wasn't just like some technical thing. This was like a major blowout that made no sense to me. Yes, and, uh, I can tell, relate that, um, during the, the writing of that book, um, I, I got some help from, um, from a lady, a wonderful lady. Uh, and, uh, she, um, she went to interview, uh, someone on my behalf about, uh, a book he wrote about UFOs. And in the story about the book, he, he tells uh, that very event that he was on radio in the 1970s. And as soon as he started to talk about, uh, his story, uh, there was a lot of static on the radio waves. And as the guy was telling that story, so it was last summer, to, to my friend, Sue, um, the power went out in the restaurants at the very time they were talking about this. So it, there seems to be a lot of synchronicities uh, about electricity in this, in this book. So it's uh, one more uh, element to add to this uh, mystery. Yeah, yeah. It was very weird. It was really, really, very weird. So... Like I said, I just want so you so you weren't left wondering after this conversation forever what happened there. It's very odd, um, 
but who knows what to make of that. Eric, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. This was an absolutely amazing conversation. I absolutely just loved it. You answered all my questions and, and uh, took me down so many different avenues that I wanted to explore having read the book, and, and you illuminated them even more than I could have possibly hoped. So I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Of course, the book, once again, folks, is Illuminations, the UFO Experience as a Parapsychological Event. That's from our friends at Anomalous Books. Another home run from them. Just an absolutely top-notch, tour de force, fantastic book. I cannot put this one over enough, Eric. You've done some amazing work with this. And again, thank you for coming on BOA Audio. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. It was a lot of fun talking to you. You had a lot of very good questions. And uh, I, uh, if, if I may, I invite your, your, uh, your listeners uh, on my website, uh, there is an email address. It's parasociology at gmail if, uh, dot com. If they want to share thoughts, if they want to provide uh, constructive criticism about the book, I welcome them all. I uh, I don't claim to have the truth. I'm proposing just different way to look at it, and uh, I'm welcoming uh, any anything from anyone that uh, may help to to push forward this project uh, further. Absolutely. All right, folks, you heard him. Get in touch if you uh, if you have thoughts on the book. And get the book, because it is fantastic. Thanks again, Eric. Thank you, and have a good evening. You Take too. care.